in the north division of Chicago, along the northern arm of the river, where the working classes and unfortunates dwelled in shabby community, Julia Lemos had taken her baby to sleep with her in her bed about nine o'clock that evening. Her small cottage had front shutters, solid without slats in them, so that when shut the room was in complete darkness. She pulled the shutters to close them, but there was such a strong wind blowing that she had to pull hard to close them. She said out loud, Oh, what a wind! It would be bad if there was a fire. She did not know that the fire had already started. About four in the morning she was wakened by a rumbling noise and got up and threw open the shutters. She thought herself dreaming. The whole street was crowded with people with hats and shawls. A neighbor who stood in front of her house called to her and said, Mrs. Lemos, are you just getting up? Julia said, yes. What's the matter? The sky was reflecting fire in lurid gleam. The woman replied that the city has been burning all night and the fire was coming now to the north side. That startled Julia, and she ran to the back room and called for her mother and father to wake up. The city is burning! The city is burning! Father ran around shaking his hands. The children, the children, I must go for them, he said. Julia said, No, you do not know where the asylum is. I will go. You stay here and take care of mother and the baby. Then she ran to the asylum. The matron told her that her children would be all right and wanted her to leave them, but Julia insisted on taking them. She had to bring them with the ragged clothes they wore, though she'd given them good clothes when they'd taken them to there, but she was thankful to get them in any way. Her youngest boy had to go without a hat. All was in confusion. People were running in crowds past the house. Julia stood with her baby in her arms and her other children beside her when a woman running past with three children said to her, Madam, ain't you going to go save those children? That decided her. They had packed two trunks and had set them at the curb. They were ready. She went to her father, who seemed confused and uncertain what to do. She said, I'm leaving. He said, wait. But she started to leave without him and got a man to help her with the trunks. Meanwhile, her father and mother gathered up some other things. Her mother put some bread and a pound of coffee in a valise. Then she took a small tin kettle. Her father came out of the house with his hunting dog, which was worth $25, on a chain. His gun and a large round cloak he wore those days. Then he locked the door and put the key in his pocket. The fire was on them. The wind blew the blazing boards for a long distance and set fire to all the goods on the prairie. A dry goods store on the corner of Wells and North Avenue had their stock here, and the fire ran along the long grass, too. They had to run and leave everything to burn. They felt the heat on their backs when they ran, like one standing with her back to a grate of fire. They ran a good way north, and when her father thought they were safe, they stopped. The sky was cloudy and very dark. There was an old board fence where they were, and her father pulled four boards off and laid them on the grass and laid three of the children on them and covered them with his large cloak again. 
but her eldest child, a boy of about nine years old, stayed up and stood beside her, holding her hand. She sat on the grass holding the baby, and the boy laid his head on her lap and went to sleep. From where they sat, they could see a circle of fire at a distance. Then they saw the church steeple topple over in the flames. Just then, her boy woke up and began to sob. She said, Mama is here, Willie. Don't cry. He said, Yes, Mama, but is this the last day? On the sugar bush, goodwife Bradstreet wept upon the scene of her ruined home. When by the ruins oft I passed, my sorrowing eyes aside did cast and hear, and there the places spy where oft I sat and long did lie. Here stood that trunk, and there that chest. There lay that store I counted best. My pleasant things in ashes lie, and them behold no more shall I. Under thy roof no guest shall sit, nor at thy table eat a bit. No pleasant tale shall e'er be told, nor things recounted none of old. No candle e'er shall shine in thee, nor bridegroom's voice e'er heard shall be. In silence ever shalt thou lie. Adieu, adieu, all is vanity. Her husband remonstrated her, withholding comfort or embrace, but straight began her heart to chide. Didst thou wealth on earth abide? Didst fix thy hope on moldering dust? The arm of flesh didst make thy trust. Raise up thy thoughts above the sky, that dunghill miss. Away may fly, thou hast an house on high erect, Framed by that mighty architect, With glory richly furnished, Stands permanent, though this be fled. It's purchased and paid for too, And by him who hath enough to do. A price so vast as is none known, Yet by his gift is made thine own. There's wealth enough, I need no more. Farewell to self, farewell to store. The good wife Bradstreet thought to herself in her comfortless silence, the world no longer let me love. Goodman Bradstreet took her shoulders in his calloused hands and shook her to shake her melancholy and said, Thy hope and treasure lies above. In Chicago, in the better neighborhood of Union Park, there was a pond, about as large as that one on the public garden, where crowds armed with pitchers, buckets,
pails and tubs all carried water and tossed it where they could to save what they could. God or the devil decided what to save. Collier's poor clapboard church was still standing, but the great Gothic Athenian marble church, the first New England congregational next to it, was in heaps and ashes. Almost all its congregation lived in that vicinity, and now their church ruined. And of those 108 families, all but eight were burned out of home and business. A man who on Sunday was a millionaire, on Monday morning stood in line to draw blankets for himself and his family to keep them warm that night. Wealthy ladies who lived in affluence all their lives were come on Monday morning into that poor clapboard church to get a little coffee and bread after having been caught by the fire and obliged to lie in the pond, ducking their heads for hours till the flames went by. The neighbors had piled up their furniture in the park, expecting that everything would be safe, but cinders flew like snowflakes, and every mattress was soon ablaze and went away with the rest of the pile. Now and then a man would be going along with a great pile of bedding and furniture on his cart, Suddenly a great smoke would begin to roll up from the cart, and in a moment a blaze would follow. A few cuts sever the cords that hold the load, and over it goes to burn away in the street, nothing but char and smolder. In the tree-lined blocks closer to the lake, where the fire had ignited the leafy heads so they spiraled in flame like gas-fed torches, the houses were palatial and beautifully furnished. People were desperate to save what they could. In one house there was an elderly woman elegantly dressed as though she had just returned from the opera. Her husband was away. She wanted especially to save her carpet on her parlor floor and implored a crowd of drunken men to assist her. They tore loose the corners and tacks flying, the carpet went up quickly. But at the back corner of the parlor there was a large bookcase full of books on the corner of the carpet and they couldn't move it. Hands filled with gilt-edged books slung them across the room in a heap, just as so much kindling would down a cellar. They moved the case, rolled up the carpet, pushed it out the window, and put it on a wagon of a rearing team amidst the torches of the live trees. Half a dozen men grabbed the piano, and that went on top of the carpet. Some minor articles of the house were tucked away in crevices, and among them some of the books. She offered them fifty dollars. They demanded one hundred. And the expressman she hired took twice that. Expressmen and their henchmen made fortunes the day of the fire and after. Of course, they had everything in their own hands, and people had to pay all or lose all. Some paid as much as four hundred dollars a load for moving their furniture or rather what little they could be got onto a load. And when the expressman came to the house, he always had a gang of his cronies with them, and they immediately went to the cellar to hunt up liquor. And as they worked, they drank. Almost every rowdy you met had a bottle or two with him. Everybody drank, and the result was a fearful state of beastliness. Then when a, an expressman got his load and his pay after driving a few squares... He'd tip off the man who went with him to show him where to leave the goods, then dump them in the street and go somewhere else. 
to get more money and more liquor. At about half past three in the morning in Peshtigo, Father Pernan came out of the river, and from that time was in a very different condition morally and physically. The atmosphere, previously hot as the breath of a furnace, was gradually becoming colder and colder, and after having been so long in the river he was susceptible to chill, whose clothes were saturated, but there was no water fire and his outer clothing easily dried on his body where he stood. But those against his skin stayed clammy and cold and penetrated his frame, affecting his lungs. Though close to a large fire, arising from heaps of burning fragments, he was still convulsively shivering, feeling at the same time a complete prostration of body and spirit. His chest was oppressed to suffocation, his throat swollen, and in addition to an almost total inability to move, he could scarcely use his voice to utter even a word. Almost lifeless he lay on the sand, which was still hot, and the warmth restored him gradually. Removing shoes and socks, he placed his feet in immediate contact with the heated ground and felt additionally relieved. He was lying beside the ruins of a large factory, the beams of which were still burning. Around him were piles of iron hoops belonging to the tubs and the buckets lately destroyed. With the intention of employing these latter to dry his socks and shoes, now the only possessions left him, he touched them, but found that they were still intolerably hot. Strangely, numbers of men were lying, some face downward, across these iron hoops. Whether they were dead or insensible from cold and damp, and seeking the warmth that the iron held he did not know, and did not discover. He was suffering too intensely himself to attend to them. About ten o'clock in the morning after the fire, while it still waged war on the city, but had left some sections in desolated ruin as it moved destruction, Judge Bardwell dug up his precious trunk beside the ruined townhouses on the Great Lake, the only thing which had been saved from his home. An expressman with a wagon appearing on the scene, Judge Bradwell asked him, Will you take us up Michigan Avenue for 50 bucks? The express man readily agreed and put the trunk on the wagon. But approaching the avenue and seeing clouds of smoke from fires still burning and seeing and hearing the detonations of buildings, he stopped in the street and pulled the trunk off the wagon. Judge Bardwell drew his pistol on the man. Take your choice of three things, he raved. Take us as you agreed to, and we may go through safely. Or, 
we may die in the attempt. Or you may stay right here and die now. Grabbing the trunk and putting it back on the wagon, the expressman said, God damn your eyes. The poor little canary in its cage in Mrs. Bradwell's lap was gasping, lying listless on the cage floor as they rode through the smoke. But its life was spared. It lived to a good old age. Once he made it to Lincoln Park, where the best and the worst of Chicago had gathered for survival, Judge Bradwell buried his trunk again and put his wife upon the mound with his pistol to guard it. Then he made through confused crowds to a makeshift citizens' meeting that he found in a near church and spoke of the sad loss of his little girl. A gentleman with whom Bessie had chanced to breakfast earlier jumped to his feet and said, Judge, your daughter's safe, and added, She carried that great heavy book of yours for nine hours looking for you and saved your Masonic cap, too. By the late afternoon, Julia, her elderly parents, her five children, and their dog had all taken refuge instinctively in a ruined church. While Julia's old father had gone to beg some milk for the children, there was a great commotion. Everyone ran to the church's gaping doors and looked out. There was a crowd in the middle of the street dragging a man along with a rope around his neck. They were going to hang him. He'd been caught setting fire for robbery. Julia decided then to leave Chicago, afraid to have her children on the street, but there was nowhere to go and no way to go there. That night at the church, everyone was asleep by midnight. But on account of her baby being restless, Julia woke up and saw a rough-looking man coming in the church door. She pretended to be asleep but watched him. He lay down in a pew for a while. Then he rose up and looked about to see if he was observed. Her father lay asleep in the next pew, and the man reached over and was just taking her father's watch when Julia sat up and the thief started and laid down again. She pretended to fuss with the baby but whispered to her mother to tell her father, which she did, and as her father, who was an old soldier, had his gun, he roused some others and took him to a guardhouse they had made. There was a lady in the church who had become insane from the fire, and her husband had gone away. All night she walked the aisles, calling out loud, John! John! The ladies made a bed for her and tended her. She later died in an insane asylum. They said she was a very celebrated singer. The janitor of the church had a wagon and horse and offered to take them to the train if they would let them have their hunting dog, worth $25. The janitor put their trunks in the wagon, and they got in. Julia sat on one trunk with one baby. Her mother sat on the other with the two-year-old. The other three children sat on the bottom of the wagon, and her father on the seat with the driver. Streetcar tracks, as far as you could see, were warped by the heat, and passing over them and among them made for a rocky ride. They drove through the city midst crowds of looters, drunks, and brawlers. Police were shooting. Vigilantes of honest citizens were assisting the police without authority, but without opposition. They arrived at last at Union Station, but found it gutted and its roof collapsed. 
Its elegant facade stood like a skeleton about the remains of damaged platforms and cluttered rails. A group of rowdies came and stood about the wagon when Julia and her family climbed off, and the janitor snapped his whip and left them there, taking off with their goods as the rowdies chased after him. Trains would not break through the wreckage on the tracks for another day. They were now utterly destitute and hopeless. When the trains finally would arrive, they would be no use to them, for they had no money for fare. But on the arrival of the very first train, a passenger stepped off. A gentleman, rather old, came into the burnt-out station and walked over to Julia. He asked her if she had been burned out in the Chicago fire. She said yes. Then he asked if all those were her children. She said they were. He said, too bad, too bad. Then he put his hand in his pocket and handed her a bill. She drew back and said, thank you, but I will not take it. He said, madam, take it for the children. His tone was so kind that she took it. He said goodbye and good luck, took his hat off and bowed as he left. When he got to the door of the station, Julia saw that the bill was a $10 bill. She would thought it was only $1. So she ran after him and stopped him. She told him, you made a mistake. You gave me $10. He said, Madam, I know it. I want you to have it. And he left. Just then, her father returned to the station with the janitor who was helping him carry in their recovered trunks. And seeing a stranger talking to his daughter, he frowned. The janitor said to her father, Do you know who that gentleman is? Her father said, No. Who is he? The janitor said, He's the richest man in New York. He won't give money to the welfare societies. He takes each case for himself. The janitor told Julia his name, but it is now forgotten. In the morning light, Father Pernan drew his wagon and his tabernacle out of the river and pulled it into the desolation of Peshtigo. All structures were gone. All trees were gone. All was flat and empty for as far as he could see. All was ashen or charred remains. A crater of the moon, but more desolate by the despair, by the anguish of so much death. The ground was ashen, and underneath the soot and ash... The soil had been seared to sand, and all that might nourish life was burned out of it. It would be barren for years. He passed his horse, partly consumed by fire, in the same spot that he had left it in the night. He found the charred heap of the boarding house where had lived the old Canadian Jack who had tried to help him with the well he dug. Taking his sacrament from his tabernacle, Father Pernan solemnly administered his priestly ritual of extreme unction upon charred corpses that he found within its ruins. But one body that he began to anoint roused and moved, and he saw the old Canadian Jack himself throw off his bear skin under which he'd been sleeping soundly through the entire fire and awoke in shock to see the town was gone. Father Pernan would often recall this miracle and say upon the old Jack's good, though futile, deed for the church, What we do for God is never lost, 
even in this world. Father Pernan held Mass at noon. Catholics and Protestants present with one accord cast themselves on their knees and prayed aloud, imploring the ruler of the elements to stay his vengeful arm and spare his people. They prayed without shyness or self-consciousness. The Adonis arrived precisely as Mass concluded. Father Pernan intoned the holy words, A verbum caro factum est, a habitavit en nobis, et vidimus gloriam ejus, gloriam quasi unigenenti apatre, plenum gracie e veritatis. And the congregation responded unanimous, Deo gracias. And the Adonis sounded its deep steam whistle. Fire lingered upon the fallen body of Chicago for two more days, gnawing at its remains. Buildings detonated by General Sherman tumbled to rubble. Drunken mobs roved and pillaged. Roving vigilantes attacked them. The length of Lincoln Park, Union Park, and all the lawns and fields along the lake were encamped by survivors, huddled with what meager possessions that they had salvaged. The newly built Palmer House, only ten days since its grand opening, was utterly destroyed. So too the courthouse, city hall, waterworks, post office, fields department store, and the stock exchange. Those few stone-faced blocks that had withstood the firestorm were blackened and gutted, and though advertised as fireproof, they stood as empty facades. The Ogden Mansion, whose owner's factory was destroyed that same night in Peshtigo, was only saved through the timely application of carpets soaked in whatever liquid is at hand, including barrels of cider from the basement. The police were summoned to guard the house, upon which cynical suspicions were cast. The New England church, which, like the Ogden mansion, faced Washington Square Park, was utterly destroyed and somewhere lost within its smoldering ruins lay a relic of rock from the shore of the old world, upon which ancestral Puritans had prayed before their embarkation, and a second relic of rock cut from Plymouth Rock, where they had landed upon this new world. Now both were fused with other stones by fire. A drunk at the southwest corner of Lincoln Park overlooking the somber cemetery of Chicago, stood wavering upon the famous stone marker for the burial of the last surviving patriot of the Boston Tea Party, and sermonized. Proud Chicago, he shouted. The boast of the West, the great mart of the Union, is burned. Your ruins loom up like Sodom and Gomorrah. Chicago boasted her grandeur would not be surpassed to the world. Ruins, relics of an unequaled fire far surpassing any of either continent in pecuniary losses. Now she is dust, her citizens sprinkled with her ashes. But alas, we all, we are all alike here now. We are all on a level. Whether it was for crimes committed or allowed to exist, he declared he could not be the judge. 
But many a man who never prayed, prayed with him, and felt contrition, and called upon the name of him that ruleth all things, and gave thanks, sincere, heartfelt gratitude, that their lives had been saved. What he said was awfully true. Everywhere unsolicited greetings of one person to another, extending hands even to strangers, would ask sincerely, Are you safe? And the other would invariably reply, Save my family, and am thankful. Relief and recovery spontaneously began. With the city pumping works stopped, the sewers could no longer discharge themselves into the river and thence poison the Great Lake. So these normally slimy, foul, and stinking shores were dared for drink. Twenty-four hours had not passed before tens of thousands of people were drinking the water with no unpleasant taste or effects. Daylight safe-breaking became a popular industry for a few days by skilled men who sprung into sudden demand. Along Randolph Street, safes were dragged into the street. Men grimed with soot and ashes worked like fiends with sledgehammers and steel wedges. Money, money, money. Everybody looking for money in safes. Men and women stood around safes as their doors were forced open, air rushed in, and hopes turned to ashes as rolls of bills crumbled at the touch. Burial of the dead began. Charred and unidentifiable corpses were buried in Potter's Field, in the Chicago Cemetery south of Lincoln Park. The refugees in the parks composed themselves of armies for the gathering of corpses and their burial. Women in the park composed themselves into societies for relief, and milk was brought to the lakeside for children, bread brought by charitable bakers, and clothing was collected and distributed by those neighborhoods and churches which had somehow survived the fire. On Tuesday, it began to softly rain. It rained gently. It rained a calm and drenching mist. It rained cool waters across the embers and smoldering ruins and doused them everywhere. It rained a solace and a mercy. Now the southwest wind was calmed by these gentle rains, and quietly and softly it grew listless, as if it had forgotten itself, and lost in vacant wandering, it lay down and rested at last. That morning, in the rain, newsboys passed out free copies of the Chicago Tribune to the refugees in the park. The paper boldly brandished these five-column-wide headlines. 18,000 buildings destroyed. 2,600 acres burned to the ground, 80,000 burned out of their homes. And inside, upon its editorial page, the young editor wrote, Cheer up.
in and around Peshtigo, 2,000 square miles had burned, 90% of which was forest. Twelve towns were destroyed, including Peshtigo. An accurate death toll has never been determined since local population records were destroyed in the fire. 2,500 persons are thought to have perished. More than 350 bodies were buried in a mass grave in Pashtigo, primarily because so many had died that no one remained alive who could identify them. The fire was so intense that it jumped several miles across the open waters of Green Bay to the Door Peninsula and burned it. It burned forests even to Canada, where it destroyed the city of Windsor, Ontario. Surviving witnesses in Peshtigo reported that the firestorm caused a fire tornado, which threw rail cars and houses into the air like jugglers throw barbells. Many survivors of the firestorm escaped flames by immersing themselves in the Peshtigo River or in wells or ponds. Some drowned while doing so. Peshtigo was rebuilt. Father Pernan rebuilt his church. Some, like the Bradstreets, moved to resettle elsewhere, but most of the farms and factories resumed. Though the sugar bush was gone, and the trees were scarce, and the land looked like an ashen volcanic field for several years. Chicago was rebuilt. The Palmer House was rebuilt immediately. Reopened in less than two years, it was built bigger, three times bigger, more ostentatious, more luxurious than ever. Oversized, over-decorated suites, a grand restaurant with a 30-foot ceiling which spangled gilded plaster, Beaux-Arts garlands, scrolls, and festoons, where frescoes of Louis XIV's pastorals chromed the walls, where enormous crystal chandeliers dazzled, where the best-dressed and best-mannered of society were humbly served sumptuous meals by tuxedoed Negro staff. The floor of the Palmer House barbershop was tiled with silver dollars. Rudyard Kipling would shortly visit. They told me to go to the Palmer House, he said. A gilded and mirrored rabbit warren, he exclaimed. And there I found a huge hall of tessellated marble crammed with people talking about money and spitting about everywhere. Other barbarians charged in and out of this inferno with letters and telegrams in their hands, and yet others shouted at each other. A man who had drunk quite as much as was good for him told me, this is the finest hotel in the finest city on the goddamn almighty earth. America is irrepressible.